One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Rooney Rule's been a controversial development in the debate over BAME managers in this country, and the authors of a new study about the impact of the rule in English football have said that clubs not complying with it should face fines and even points deductions. Steve Jones met them in a busy cafe to talk through their study, its findings, and how they arrived at that conclusion. Please listen carefully, the sound's not great. So the background to the study, well, it was a coming together of various different interests, really. Um, so we are HR researchers, essentially, so human resource management researchers and researchers interested in employment. Um, but we've also got a strong interest in quality and diversity issues within the school and within our research group. Um, but we also had a partnership with Charlton Athletic Football Club and Michael Siraj at um, Charlton Athletic Community Trust is also a researcher. Um, and of course we have a connection with Paul Mortimer from Kick It Out as he was working at the time. Um, Paul being an ex-Charlton player and so on. So there was a good network there and the timing was good as well because the Rooney Rule had just actually been piloted in the EFL and it just occurred to all of us simultaneously this is a really important opportunity to look at something that's just being implemented now and access sort of club level experiences because that seemed to us to be the big sort of missing piece of the jigsaw there was quite a lot of stuff out there in terms of policy and campaign reports and so on very little in terms of club directors experiences and experiences in terms of the club as a business trying to implement a new rule and what the effects might be then on the employment practices recruitment practices of the club as a business so we came from it we came to it from that sort of angle really um, so it was partly timing and partly the people involved and partly just sort of personal interests I think and then, okay, difficult question. Can you try and summarise in a few sentences or even a couple of minutes? Um, we can try, yeah. Um, so the, the, the findings are that the has been mixed. So it's been mixed between different sorts of clubs and, really importantly, within clubs. So there's a huge difference in what's happened in what, we, what people call the first-team bubble where it's been had less of an impact uh, in the academies it seems to have a very strong impact and they've also seen to be different approaches taken by different types of club so some clubs have been more engaged with it than others um, some 
uh, with have strong values, strong commitments to community engagement, community participation, do seem to engage more strongly. Other clubs are more resistant. Some clubs don't necessarily have the human resource infrastructure to implement the pro- to implement the the ruling rules. So it's, it's been very mixed, I think. Yeah, I'd agree with that, and it's really a question of a journey, an adaptation journey. We think for clubs, we expected to find more resistance and outright hostility actually from some clubs we found less of that than we yeah. than, than, than we expected um, and we think that's partly it's not outright hostility sort of lack of interest maybe um, lack of knowledge lack of competence lack of confidence really in sort of introducing this kind of formal recruitment process and being able to work with it so we found clubs shying away from it but our conclusion really is that clubs are willing to be led on this, they're waiting to be led on it and being, and waiting to be told what to do um, and we're not there yet by any stretch of the imagination but it is there for the taking in our opinion Yeah, um, it just requires some leadership from the EFL and from the FA to really drive this forward I think. You mentioned the lack of knowledge uh, you know, the pragmatic approach yeah. do you think there is a hearts and minds debate that needs to be won on the Rooney Rule? I'm not so sure. I, I think the extent of racism in the game and really people's awareness of issues around race in the game is probably higher than it's ever been. So I don't think there's much dispute that there's a problem. Um, it's really a question of, as we were saying before, showing clubs how to recruit properly and how to recruit formally. It's really about professionalisation of recruitment with a seriousness towards equality and diversity issues built into it. Um, that's what's lacking, I think, in clubs, is that sort of professional type of operation, not, not so much you know, a, you know, a denial or, or misunderstanding of, of, of issues of race. Yeah, I mean, from the clubs we worked with, um, there were two key drivers. You had one group of clubs who were very strongly driven on a moral, ethical sense, that they saw themselves as community clubs, they're trying to stand up to discrimination and racism and then there are another group who were more pragmatic and they were following what you could call the business case for diversity mm. and they were aware that you needed to broaden your pool of potential managerial talent and effectively excluding a third of managerial talent is not a sensible long-term strategy so there were you were getting buy-in from both those directions but Generally speaking, the clubs that worked with us were very positive. Yeah. Okay. Let's just take it one step back. For the sake of the podcast, can we just define the rule rule as you understand it? And there are two elements to it. There's the Rooney rule as it applies to first team. So, in that sense, all appointments for senior positions in the first team, that's first team manager and senior coaches, have to be advertised for, for the first thing if the main thing is that if a recruitment process takes place and this has, hasn't been defined anywhere so it could provide potentially be a loophole if a recruitment process takes place one suitably qualified ethnic minority candidate has to be interviewed and the post is supposed to be advertised um, I think on the EFL website and I think that um, kick it out as well so it's what we call a guaranteed interview scheme 
but there's this opt-out in terms of if the recruitment process takes place and what's happening what the EFL themselves say is that in most cases recruitment processes don't take place i.e. people are just appointed so essentially there's not much in the way of teeth there there's no monitoring there's no evaluation of what's going on the EFL I think have very recently started to try to encourage clubs to report but again I'm not sure whether that's obligatory or not it's essentially a code of practice which is still voluntary really in the sense that as Leroy says you don't necessarily need to follow a formal recruitment process in every case particularly for first team managers it's not expected by the EFL that the teams and clubs should do that um, so again it's these sorts of loopholes and <laughs> areas we discovered as we got into the research that we didn't expect to find so that's that's the first part the really rule the second part is for the academies that's much more strict um, that is compulsory it is monitored and it has to apply to every single appointment and there I think the EFL figures suggest that it has made a difference I think it's increased the likelihood significantly increased the likelihood of ethnic minority candidates being interviewed as far as the I can see from the evidence that EFL have produced there doesn't seem to have been a great deal of impact in the first team why is it do you think that the EFL you know, we allow football to have this first team bubble, you know, one rule for the first team and then, you know, half a dozen for the academy. Money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's the kind of industry which there's so much money flying around, there's so much short-termism short and pressure to get points on the board. The usual sort of common sense and good practice around recruitment just goes out the window, we think, because clubs panic, they appoint a new manager in secrecy, they do it very suddenly, um, and it's a particular problem with sport and with first team football, but our argument is that it doesn't need to be, I mean these are not sort of small community based organisations, these are multi-million pounds clubs, enterprises that ought to be doing things in a professional way, and there's actually no reason why first team manager appointments can't be done in a more formal, structured and transparent way. Um, it's a choice, essentially, um, but it's it's something that other industries can do, so why shouldn't football? Yeah, I mean, it's not a sustainable long-term approach to be perpetually working in crisis management mode, and generally speaking, when managers are appointed, it is as a crisis management. You've had pressure from the fans, you've had poor results, get rid of the manager, bring someone else in and you, if you're doing it in the middle of the season lots of pressures you realistically you're not going to have time to have a formal recruitment process that's not how it's been working and this is one of the, our findings is the fact that the Rooney rule came from the states which had a very very different model I don't know if you want to talk about that it was a very very different model of relationships between the regulators and the clubs and between clubs and managers and that model's been transplanted from the state, which is highly regulated, highly formalised, highly standardised, to the UK, where essentially it's, it's not quite a free-for-all, but it, it does have elements of having very little control over the recruitment processes that are mm. going on. Except in the academies. Yeah. So the academies, because of 
that because they're more highly regulated anyway, they have to be as charitable because they may have charitable status and so on. That's a different set of practices, we think. But I mean, the other point about the states is that they also not only are better regulated and more formally and democratically run, really. Um, they have these hiring windows as well built into the season, which we don't have for managerial appointments here in, 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 in English football anyway. How do you find this industry compares to others with regard to what you just said? standardised practices, etc. Well, you're always going to have highly globalised, short-termist, very finance and money-driven industries. I mean, investment banking would be another example. You know, that's a fairly kind of opaque world at its most senior levels. Some of the sort of senior executive appointments that you get in the corporate world as well. Um, you may say that many of these industries could be similar but I think you'd find if you went to most of these large corporations you'd find pretty watertight and standardised recruitment processes in place. I mean how well they're implemented is another question but I think you would certainly find them on paper. We don't even find them on paper in football. No. No, I mean it's, it's absolutely set in stone. We've talked to football people and it's what happens in the first team bubble is entirely a matter for the people involved in the first team bubble. Outside the first team bubble, in the, in the larger clubs, you do have formal, strong application of HR policy. And it, it, they look like any other organisation. Within the first team bubble, they're almost the law unto themselves. Talk about the Rudy rule in America. Obviously, you mentioned that's a much more formalised rule process. How would you evaluate that, the success of that rule? Well, you can yeah. see it. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems to have made a huge difference. I mean, within five years, you had a vast increase in the numbers of ethnic minority cultures. And it's, it's clearly had a, a, a major knock-on in that industry. So we quote the figures in the report, but there was a marked increase in the number of African-American coaches and managers in the NFL. Um, there was also a fine on one of the clubs, the Detroit Lions. Mm. Um, second year. In the second year of the Rooney Rule, exactly. Um, $250,000, I think it was. Um, and that seemed to have done the trick. They've not had to issue any fines since. There's quite a lot of controversy, I think, still in the States about the effectiveness of the Rooney Rule. It's not, you know, done and dusted there by any stretch of the imagination, but um, it's certainly got more teeth yeah. and more effectiveness than, than the EFL's um, voluntary recruitment code. Yeah, I mean, it's a very, it might have the same name, but they are very different things. They're in a different environment, and there's also a different set of rules. It's much more tightly regulated. There's monitoring and evaluation. You've also got very strong oversight by independent organisations. And uh, where loopholes have occurred, they've, they've been closed. So I think you've got to... I think one of the things you wanted to talk about is what's a meaning of suitably qualified. And I think one of the non-government organisations has a list, maintains a list of suitably qualified potential coaches and that you have to choose people from that list rather than having sham interviews with some guy that you just walked into in the corridor. There's also obviously a system of fines and there's a system of very strong regulation in terms of a managerial transfer window and also which coaches and which managers can transfer and in what circumstances and when. So it's a very, very different environment. Yeah, yeah. With the suitably qualified thing, where that came from is because you know, I mentioned the hearts and minds debate on this. I think many members of the public who aren't too well read on this issue mm 
that's so often two words that are omitted when people talk about the running world. They, yeah. they think you're just given a job because of the colour of your skin, mm. given an interview on tokenism, whereas suitably qualified is a key part of the rule. And yeah. obviously a lot of people, I don't know if you found this, don't actually realise that's the case. That you can't, you know, as you say, you're not just given a job because they bump into you in the corridor and, and then it's for mm. quota. You know, you're still there on merit. Yeah. There's a, a lot of misunderstanding about positive action in England, UK, but also in the States, where it would be affirmative action, of course, but there's a lot of misunderstanding about what positive action means and where you have two suitably qualified candidates you can appoint on the basis of protected characteristics under the law. Yeah. Did you find any of that misunderstanding within your research of the clubs in England? more along the level of how do, here's a new process how do I implement it yeah. really yeah. how do I put it into yeah. practice rather than kind of arguing the fine details of, of the law I mean we had some discussion around um, data protection and whether it uh, contravened data protection which it, it clearly doesn't um, and maybe a lack of clarity around reporting and what you need to report yeah now, we know that 16 of 72 clubs responded to your data collection survey. Just talk me through some of the struggles you had collecting data as part of this study. Because obviously we know that clubs are generally as a closed door to outsiders. Mm. Yeah, it was, it was challenging, very challenging. Um, I think we could have had more support from the EFL and FA. I think that would have made a big difference. Um, and I think a lot of the clubs don't feel comfortable discussing these issues. Um, people talked about them circling the wagons, not washing their dirty linen in public. There is an idea that you kind of keep these things and, and resolve them themselves. Um, and then there's issues around lack of stability in some clubs and the, the fact that you could negotiate access to a club and then for various external or internal factors would come into play and that club would, may or may not be able to maintain the commitment to participate in the research. So it was really, really challenging at all levels. It's certainly very different to any other research I've undertaken. It's much, much more challenging. We had one case, for example, where there were two changes of ownership and I think four changes of manager within yeah. two years period in which we were trying to do research so we did pretty well to get in there at all actually under yeah. the circumstances. Obviously there were four main clubs you focused on. Uh, you say club one is the likely to be the most typical. Just talk me through the characteristics of club one with regard to the BRC. Well I think club one is a sort of typical case. It wasn't the largest club in the league, it wasn't the smallest and had quite a well-developed sort of community trust and academy and the people that were in charge of that were really tasked with implementing the voluntary recruitment code. Um, it was kind of chucked down to them and said, you own this, you do this. And so they'd started drawing up job descriptions, person specifications, advertising roles properly and, and doing a proper process and starting to implement the code without much buy-in or leadership from the top of the club without much understanding across the rest of the club and why they had to do it so it was kind of treated as a, a kind of bureaucratic um, compliance issue really wasn't it um, but not with as I said any kind of great hostility or drama it was just something that was felt to be important and needed to be done um, and it's not difficult to do either that's the that's the other thing 
but it's not something that was seen as a strategic priority by the club um, at that stage and I guess they would be looking to the academy and the community trusts managers to show the rest of the club what they ought to be doing if they actually had to eventually in the future. But at, at the top, would you describe it? Would it be fair to say it was generally a lukewarm response, or would you disagree with that? Um, yeah, I think that's. I mean, they were they were relatively positive. I mean, nobody that we we didn't interview anybody that was hostile to the. But then that might be because our groups are self-selecting. But mm. they were certainly generally positive or neutral towards it as Pat was saying it's just that it's a compliance issue it's something that they just feel they've got to get on and do um, I mean the, some of the community driven clubs were more enthusiastic than the less values driven clubs mm. so I mean, it, it varied I think yeah I think it did vary and then you would have for example a club that didn't have a particular diversity problem and therefore didn't have a particular positive attitude towards the code I mean what's this why should we have to comply with this we're already a diverse club why this interference in our business and restrictions of our freedoms and you also had differences within the club around yeah. individuals I mean some individuals for values reasons or family reasons were more strongly committed than others mm. so it, it did vary a lot I know we've been over this a little bit, but can you just talk through some of the other enabling and or constraining factors that the clubs face? A very well-developed academy, we think, is probably one of the key factors because there you do really have professional practices in place. And if you've got a well-respected academy that is also used to recruit youth players through to the first team eventually, it's more likely to be taken seriously at the top of the club. Um, so it's more likely to be able to influence some of the practices. So we think that kind of professionalisation, really. And I guess it's an obvious point, but in the larger clubs, they're more likely to have HR managers, maybe even a whole HR team, which obviously helps um, in terms of professionalising recruitment. Well, we talked a lot about the first team bubble and the fact that what happens there is very different to what happens outside in the rest of the club. So that's a major constraint. Um, then another external constraint is around just the, the whole way that managers are appointed. So even take putting um, issues around race on one side, it's the, the short-termism, the role of social networks, the lack of professionalism, those are all major constraints. Um, there's also, I think there were some issues around location as well. I mean, it's, it's hard to, to generalise because we had a limited sample. But there did seem to be some difference between London and the southeast and non-metropolitan areas, but we probably need to drill into that a bit, a little bit further. Yeah, although we mentioned in the report, I mean, there's quite a lot of precedents for black managers, for example, to go to northern clubs and work up in northern clubs. It's not as if northern clubs can't reach out to a wider talent pool. There's a national pool of coaches out there and potential coaches out there which is very diverse, um, but it was particularly London in the southeast maybe could draw on a more diverse local population through its academies, for example, and through its coaching networks. But 
don't actually think there's any reason why Northern clubs couldn't tap into the same talent pool. No, I'm sure not. Mm. Sure. Obviously, a couple of the conclusions you came to were points deductions and cash fines. What made you arrive at those conclusions? Well, partly the experience in the States and the Rooney Rule in the States was effective and possibly the reason it's effective is because they had the fine so early on to show that the, 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 the regulation has some teeth. In, in the UK at the moment it, it doesn't have any teeth so it's, it's voluntary so there's no pressure on clubs to actually engage with this and if we did have points deductions or fines I would imagine that they will start to take it more seriously. Yeah, I mean, the EFL code does provide for charges against clubs that don't comply, but I mean, there's no sign of it being used at all so far, even threatened to be used so far, unless the code has got negative consequences for clubs that don't comply with it. It probably won't ever be taken seriously enough. First of all, you've got to have monitoring, and at the moment, certainly in the past, there was no monitoring. Um, at the moment, I think there is monitoring, but it seems to be on a voluntary basis. So I think, as far as I can tell, the clubs are expected to report on the ethnicity of people applying and people being appointed, but I'm not sure they actually have to do that. And once you've got past the stage of monitoring, then you get onto the stage of sanctions or incentives. And there's also a range of incentives mm. that the EFL and the FA could use in order to encourage clubs to comply with the with the regulations. Yeah, we, we recommend some system of positive incentives in the report. We think this could be a really great thing for clubs to show off about. They could be known as a responsible and inclusive employer. They could be celebrated and somehow accredited for it, maybe rewarded. And we have suggested the idea of hosting free coaching training for players that want to become coaches eventually from any background but wouldn't that be great if clubs were given the resources to actually host and have training run in their clubs I mean we understand the FA is responsible for coaching it's not the EFL's responsibility but that doesn't seem to be an insurmountable obstacle to us should be able to deliver that kind of positive outcome and the lack of coaches in England and the rest of the game in the UK is a problem anyway that, that could be addressed. So that's one of the sort of positive incentives that we're, that we're recommending. Um, on the negative side, just to go back a step, um, you could argue that this whole issue is analogous to gender pay gap reporting. So it wasn't until this kind of harder regulation came in obliging businesses to report on their gender pay gaps that organisations have really had to sit up and take notice and start to look at themselves and how responsible they are as employers. So it needs that bit of hard regulation if, if it's going to change behaviour. What's the response been to you know those calls for negative sanctions? Um, as far as I'm aware, they've, they've not been... I don't think that they're going to be supported. I mean, I'm sure the EFL and... FA are not going to want to, to do that unless they're made to do that. But, mm. And it's whether you can have some sort of pressure on them to engage with this and introduce sanctions. Hopefully you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't have to do it or you'd only have to do it once. I mean, that was the case in the States. They've only mm. done it once. And once it was done that single time... I mean, we do say in the report that the EFL deserves a lot of credit for getting this code actually implemented off the grounds and implemented. It was a pretty bold step. 
for the EFL. There aren't many industries in the country that have gone so far. On the other hand, race is such an important issue in the game. Race and racism is such an important problem in the game. And people are crying out for some urgent action and some serious leadership on this. And we can't just wait to see how well the code works or doesn't work. You know, and another year goes by, another two, three, four, five years goes by, and a whole generation of, of black coaches, for example, are left by the wayside again. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the, the idea, I think, is to let this evolve naturally. So because the academies are so much more regulated, you will be getting a bigger pool of people coming through the academies, coaches coming through the academies, who will then be potential first team managers. But I'm not sure that that's going to automatically translate, just because you've got a bigger pool, that whether they're actually going to be recruited. So I think we do, it's a good start, but you need some sort of intervention to make sure that this wider pool are going to be engaged with in a meaningful way. One final question for club owners who obviously pump millions of pounds of their own money into it you know, what would you say to them in response to if they were to say well this is my club you know I can run it how I want do you see what I mean yeah well there's two responses you've got response that all other organisations and all other industries have to engage to have to abide by the law. You work in a community, you work in a nation and we have rules, regulations and laws and you have to obey them so just because you own a business doesn't mean that you can just flout the law. And secondly, there's a strong business case for widening the talent pool and drawing managers from a much, much more diverse background. At the moment, a third of players are from a minority ethnic background. That looks like it's increasing. That's a potential pool of potential managers. And why exclude them? There's so much talent there that's being excluded at the moment. You might also say that club owners have got a particular responsibility to be responsible employers and to be inclusive employers. I mean, football is such an important industry, not just economically, but culturally in this country. It's got so much recognition and it's so high profile. It means that you're in a particularly responsible position as a club owner to do the right thing. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 